Thank you for downloading our podcast or watching our sermon series. It is very important that we know the God we worship. It is also imperative that we discern how God defines himself in his word. If we do not take the time to know our God, we will never know ourselves. We might think we can never know God. When we really think about God, we can see some apparent tension. How can we say, for instance, that God is simple on the one hand, but also incomprehensible? How can we say that God is separate, but also personal at the same time? These are just some of the instances. Please join us as we seek to answer these questions and many more, and remind ourselves that we are the creatures, and He is the great Creator King. Well, as we continue to work through the Belgic Confession and deal with the uh, individual attributes of God, remember we've talked about the division of the attributes of God as being incommunicable and communicable. And so if you want to impress people, you can just throw those words around. But what it simply means is this. Incommunicable means these are attributes that are unique to God. He does not share them with his creatures or his creation. Communicable means that these are attributes that he shares with his creatures in this creation. So what we've covered so far, we've looked at incommunicable attributes. We said God is simple. Remember, he's not comprised of complex parts. We said God is majestic. He's above all things. He's glorious and, and beyond our reach, dwelling in the most holy and in the highest place of heaven itself. We have that God is incomprehensible, that we can't fully comprehend who he is. And so now as we continue on, we're moving on to invisibility, or God being invisible. And when we think about this attributes, we can say invisible in, in spirit. Uh, when we think about those attributes, it's kind of shocking, but we actually classify them as communicable attributes. That these are things, or this is a attribute that God shares with his creation and his creatures. And so when we think about this, we can say, well, how can this be that a God who is so majestic and so holy, a God that we cannot see, is a God who shares this invisibility with his creatures and with this creation? How, how does this work? What, what does this even look like? And so as we look at this and we consider the issue of how can we say that God being invisible, majestic, and glorious, would share this invisibility with us. And then if we can't see God, why would we want to draw near to him if, if we can't see him anyway? How do we know he's there? So as we look at these questions, we'll see first, what is invisibility, right? Let's first define that. How do we show that God is invisible, we're invisible, and make sure we understand what we're talking about there? And secondly, how, how is this really something that encourages us in a Christian life to serve a God that we cannot see. So let's begin with what is invisibility. Well, the thing we have to, to remember when we talk about uh, these attributes of God, when we say it's communicable, meaning that God shares them with the creation, it doesn't mean that as God shares his attribute with his creatures or this creation, that it's one and the same. So when we talk about our being invisible, we're talking about our souls, right? I mean, God has created us, body and soul. He's created a specific soul to go with our specific body. That's invisible. We think also about where God dwells in the most holy place, heaven itself. Well, 
That's a physical place when you read Hebrews. It's also a place where we see Isaiah called into the presence of God. John has a vision in heaven. And yet it's something that we cannot see. But yet it's something that God has created. And so we can say, yes, these are, this is something that he shares with the creation. It's an attribute that he uh, puts into the creation and into his creatures. Now, we obviously want to be careful with this. Because we don't want to say that we're invisible as God's invisible. And it's, it's one and the same. Because the distinction we make that I think is helpful is where we talk about God being eternal and as creatures being everlasting. Now, uh, we may wonder, well, what's the significance of that distinction? When we talk about God being eternal in terms of who he is, it means God has no beginning. He has no end. It means that God uh, dwells outside of time but also works in time. God sees the end of history, beginning of history, current time in history, all at once, which, I mean, again, that's something that's, that's mind-boggling to think about how God can do that and keep it all straight and still uh, care about, you know, basically the milliseconds of each day uh, and, and all the different creatures of this creation. It becomes sort of overwhelming when, when you think about all the details that God has to uh, maintain by his providence and to keep operating uh, for this creation to be. So many things we take for granted. And so when we say God is eternal, I mean he has no beginning, has no end, he works in time, he's outside of time. When we say that we're everlasting, this is where uh, we're speaking of ourselves having a point in history where we were not, and then we are. So from that point of conception all the way until our eternal rest, so death, go to heaven, uh, wherever uh, we may go. I mean, I, I hope as we're here, we end up in heaven, that we're taking hold of Christ by faith and seeking to honor him. So that's, you know, obviously the assumption. We take hold of Christ by faith, we dwell with him in the glory of heaven. So we have a, a time prior to our, our conception when we are not, and then we are, and then we continue to be. Now the thing about us as Creatures, and, and you get a flavor of this when John sees the saints under the altar, don't you? That the saints under the altar say to the Lord, How long, O Lord? Right? And, and what are they asking for? Well, they're asking for Christ to come again to bring his judgment and to give them their resurrection body. So, right there, there you have the souls of the saints. John seeing the invisible souls, if you will, manifested, kind of like the angels of heaven, however. That worked, or, or whatever he saw, we don't fully comprehend, but he knew they were the souls of the martyred saints, and he heard them calling out to God, how long? And so that communicates to us as creatures, even when we go into the, the realm of heaven or into the presence of Christ, we still sort of have a progression. Uh, we still learn. Uh, we, we don't just know. And that's the other thing with God being eternal. He just knows. He, he doesn't have to study. He doesn't learn. And so these are places where we see and want to maintain that distinction. Yes, God is invisible in who he is. We have a soul. There is an a, a aspect of us as we are body and soul where there is a part of us that is invisible. Uh, we do continue on for eternity, but we like to use the language of everlasting, which means a moment of conception, Continue on 
uh, unto where the Lord uh, will have us dwell with him at the proper time, in his timing as we lived out the days under the sun that he has numbered for us. So when we talk about this, we may say, well, why, how do we know that the Lord really, really shares this with the, with the creatures? Because again, this is a statement that becomes a little difficult for us to grasp. So I just wanted to kind of just lay out a few things of what our, our scriptures or even what our systematic theology would say. So, for instance, we think of Isaiah 6, right? You have there the vision of Isaiah called into the heavenly assembly. He sees a heavenly council, the angels of God uh, going around doing the, the will of God. You know, I, I love the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, teach us to do your will as willingly as the angels in heaven, right? And you get that flavor in Isaiah where he comes into this glorious vision, and he says to the Lord, Woe, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell with the people of unclean lips. I should not be here. I don't belong here. You have the angel taking the coal from the altar, touching it to his lips. And then you have there that, that picture of the Lord basically putting the words into Isaiah's mouth and giving him the, the sanctified voice, if you will, to come back to the people and to bring the word of God. But nevertheless, as Isaiah is there, he sees the angels of heaven. And when the Lord says, who shall go, you have this, this wonderful presentation where Isaiah finally says, send me, where he's willing to go to be the spokesman of God from this heavenly assembly, bringing the words from the glorious um, enthronement of God to the earthlings of the earth and going back down. Now, I might say, well, does this mean that we become gods? Well, this is something where we see Christ addressing this in John 10, where you have the Pharisees you know, pushing Christ about whether or not he would claim to be a God or, or what does he mean by this. And Christ in John 10, verse 34 and 35, in the context of the Good Shepherd narrative, cites from Psalm 82. Now, this is a, a rather significant passage, too, because in Psalm 82, the Lord says, You are gods. Today I have begotten you. And the Lord's addressing basically the earthlings and the earthly leaders and how they're exploiting the poor, not caring for the poor, uh, just basically doing what they want. But it's a, an interesting thing where you have the Lord actually declaring humanity and, and rulers as being gods and using the language of Elohim. So we say, well, what do we do with this? Does this mean we become gods? Well, again, this is just simply the Lord uh, calling to our attention that we are those who are his creatures. And as we're in the image of God, uh, we rule and, and we do things for his honor and glory. And so like God, we rule in this earthly realm, but we're always under the authority of God. So yeah, scripture does use the language of Elohim, but we say there's capital E for God, who's the ultimate supreme king of kings and ruler of rulers. And then you have the lowercase Elohims, where the Lord says specifically, I've created you, I've made you, uh, showing that distinction of what the creature is. And so no, we do not become God in terms of this attribute. But going on, we think also of Elijah and just another example in scripture. And think of how Elijah is there lining up, engaging in holy war, and there's a young man who's, who's terrified. He says, we're outnumbered, we're never going to win this, this is impossible, I don't know what we're doing here, this is a bloodbath and we're going to die. 
Well, Elijah prays in 2 Kings 6, 17 through 19. He prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, show this man basically all the heavenly army. And all of a sudden, the Lord basically pulls back the veil. And, and what was invisible to this man that we don't see, all of a sudden he sees the spiritual realm. And he sees all the angels of God assembled and ready to go and engage in war. Uh, you think again, Daniel, you can have different examples where all of a sudden the veil's pulled back and the creature sees the invisible realm and sees the bigger picture of what the Lord is doing. And so this is basically that reminder then that the Lord does share this with his creatures, but the creatures do not become God. We are always creatures by his hand. We are not those who will attain the status of God. So now we, we jump into our text briefly and just kind of uh, look at something quickly. We look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. When we look here, we notice that Paul identifies who God is, uh, the one that no one has ever seen or can see in verse 16. Now you think about this declaration that's made, that we can't see God. Nor will we see God. Now the reference here is in the context of this seems to be that Paul is thinking or alluding to uh, Moses in Exodus 33, 17 through 23, where Moses wants to see God. And the Lord says, no one can look upon my face. And again, God's not a man. He's using what we call anthropomorphic language. It just simply means man-like language as a description of himself. Uh, we can't fully comprehend God, but we can understand what it means to look upon someone's face, right? We can recognize who that person is when we see their face. And so what the Lord is saying is no one can truly see me. No one can see me in the fullness of my glory. Well, Moses is one who wants to see God. The Lord passes over uh, Moses, and we say this is a theophany, so it's a visible manifestation of God. That's all that language means. It comes from the Greek, but it's basically just a visible manifestation of God, that God uh, shows or demonstrates his glory in some way. So Moses learns he cannot look upon God, he cannot see God, even though when Moses comes down from the mountain, uh, he displays the very glory of God where the Israelites can't even look upon him. So when we think about what Paul's saying here and going back to Exodus 33, where we think of, of a prophet who is called in the presence of God, brings the law of God, brings the word of God to the people, Moses being the paradigm prophet, right? All the prophets will be like unto Moses, as the Lord says. And you think, well, if this prophet who spends 40 days with God on the top of Mount Sinai, and the Lord writes on the tablets of stone, and if this man cannot see God, how is this encouraging? Right? Because Paul, when he writes to Timothy, we, we think of this epistle as being a practical epistle in the sense that, as Paul's saying, this is kind of how I expect the church to function. This is what it looks like for a church to be healthy. Uh, these are some of the things I want to see in the church, see implemented, and, and ideally how a church would run, right? So we think of the pastoral epistles. That's kind of what, what's going on there. Paul giving his advice to a young uh, theologian, a young pastor, 
And it's rather significant because we're moving from an apostle receiving the word of God and bringing it to the church to one who's taking the word of God, uh, interpreting the word of God, and preaching the word of God as we see with Timothy. And so how are we then encouraged by God being invisible? Why, why would Paul call this to Timothy's account uh, when he himself is supposed to serve the living God and yet he can't see the living God? And he's reminded of this. When we think about what's going on, the first temptation we may say is, well then, how do we know we can draw near to God? If he's unapproachable, if he dwells in the glory of heaven, if we cannot see him, how can we come near to him? And how do we know that God's even going to want us to come near to him? In fact, this even gets a little more complicated. We think about Paul saying this to Timothy, where he tells us who God is. He dwells alone in this unapproachable light. This, this is a, a very ominous term for a sinner. It's not ominous in the sense that it's dreary or, or horrible or sinful. It's actually glorious. It's saying that God dwells in, in such a glory that as mere mortals and sinners, we, we can't come into his presence. It's unapproachable. We, we can't attain it as we are right now. No one has ever seen him. You think, wow, you're really encouraging me here, Paul. I'm supposed to preach the gospel, and here I'm preaching it for a God that I cannot draw near to, that I cannot know, that a God who is unapproachable, right? So hopefully we're, we're getting the force of this. So what is Paul doing here? Well, what Paul wants Timothy to understand is who our God is. And we have to understand who our God is. Because the problem we can have is we can define God by our own definition, right? This is kind of what we've seen with Israel and Hosea, where, where you know, one of the problems in idolatry is, is we redefine who God is in our image, we don't define who God is, how God has defined himself. We, we define him in our image. We, we make him who we want him to be. And we might say, well, why is that such a problem? Well, if you think back in the Old Testament, where Paul would be familiar with this, you think of the book of Job. And Job is one who, with the counselors, and it becomes a rather drawn-out thing, where you, you read the book and you think to the statement, you know, give a man enough rope and he'll hang himself, right? And Job and the counselors do a really good job of hanging themselves as to what they believe about God. And it's, it's really a, a book of wisdom, how to apply wisdom, and how does one live in a fallen world where we have these categories of right and wrong and, and justice and injustice, and Job is a man who boasts of his justice and how he only does what is right. And he has pleased the Lord. And if he had come into the Lord's counsel, he would be able to argue his case and God would side with him, right? So when you go through Job, you, you certainly hear that as Job builds his case. Because the counselors say, well, Job, there's, there's something you've done in secret that we don't know about. Because God just doesn't do this to righteous people. And Job's saying, there's nothing secretive here. I'm one who's done everything right. I'm a good guy. I'm cared for the widow. I've done everything that God would require of me. And you have Elihu who lays out something significant about God. 
And he calls Job to account when he says these words in Job 37. So Elihu becomes sort of a John the Baptist-like speaker or prophet where he's preparing the way for the voice of God. So Elihu is the one, the counselor, who speaks the true wisdom of God and reminding us that as God is invisible and his ways are beyond our ways, he says this, The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. That's a rather loaded statement. And when you think about all of what Job has endured, to hear that come to Job is something that's sort of shocking. The man has lost his his kids. The man's lost all his wealth. The man has lost his health. And yet, this is what Elihu says when preparing the way for God. Now, when we hear this, we say, wow, Elihu is saying God is distant. You're not going to get your day in court with God. Now, the Lord does come, and he does speak to Job, and he does encourage Job to gird up his, or he commands Job to gird up his loins like a man, and they're going to go at it. And Job learns real quickly that he puts his hand over his mouth, And that the ways of God, even though he cannot see God, that God's ways are way higher than his ways. Now again, we we think about that. We think about what Paul is saying to Timothy. It almost sounds as if, you know, if you're suffering, just suck it up. That's just it. God just does what God wants to do and he's completely arbitrary, so deal with it. And I don't think that's what we're intended to take from the book of Job. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And so we got to sort of dig deeper rather than just say, well, this is just who God is. You just deal with it and suck it up. And if he wants to get you, he'll get you. And if he doesn't want to get you, he won't get you. And that's it. Paul's obviously encouraging us with something else, something more. So what, what is Paul telling us? Well, he wants us to know that God alone has true immortality. Now, Paul does use this language for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54 two times, where he speaks of our resurrection body putting on that immortality. But what he wants us to do, Paul's not contradicting himself if somebody wants to go there. That's not at all what he's doing. But he's saying in terms of who intrinsically, just and what I mean by that, who in and of themselves, just in who they are, has immortality, it's God. In other words, God just is, and he is just immortal. He doesn't die. He doesn't come into being. He's not birthed. He's not created. He always is. And so when Paul speaks of the resurrection body putting on immortality, he wants us to understand that because of who God is and his redemptive blessing, when we are raised from the dead, we have that blessing of dwelling in eternity. The very unapproachable God who is distant from us becomes a God in whose presence we dwell. And the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15, when he uses this language of immortality, is that he gives us a body that makes it appropriate where now we can dwell in the heavenly glory, in the full glory and presence of God. So right here, verse 16, hearing this immortality and contemplating this, you say, my goodness, What a God. 
that here he is in the full glory, content in himself, doesn't have to share any of this. And if we are distant and never able to draw into his presence or come before him, that's fair. That, that's fine. God has every right to do that. But using this language of immortality, Paul wants us to think about the reality of God's recreative benefit. God in and of himself is immortal. He is invisible. He is glorious. But we will put on a body in such a way that we can dwell with him forever. This language then moving on in Paul's uh, exhortation here, a reminder of who God is, that he dwells in unapproachable light. Vision here as we think of basically the temple, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the glory of God filling these spaces. You know, again, that theophany, that visible presentation of God. You know, presented as smoke, uh, presented as fire. Those are, are the manifestations of God's full glory filling the temple or the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant. You think of a misstep, touch the Ark, you die, right? It's not that, that God is vindictive or mean, but it's communicating the, the reality that the Lord had a certain prescription as to how the Ark was to be transported, and it was violated. That's the glory of God. And Paul is reminding Timothy that, that we have to understand and be conscious of who this God is. He dwells in this glory. This is something where in and of ourselves and who we are, we, we can't just enter into this place. We can't kick the door open into heaven and say, here I am. The reality is we, we would be struck dead. And so Paul wants us to sort of be overwhelmed by this. But to understand as we draw near to Christ or draw near to God in Christ, this is where we communicate and commune with God. When he says no one has seen or can see, this again is the amazing reality of God being the invisible one who is full of glory and everything of what glory is. And you think of the reality even when we're in heaven, we are those who will only be able to see visible manifestations of God as he desires to show them to us. We'll see Christ Jesus, and, and that will be gone tabernacling in our midst, but even in heaven we're not going to see the full glory of God. I mean, the, the fullness of who God is, we'll see his glory, and we'll see the manifestations of it, but he'll still be invisible to us. You think about that, declaration and, and who this God is. We'll, we'll most likely hear his voice and uh, we'll probably be in a place of glory where it would certainly be something so majestic and glorious that in these mortal bodies we, we would fall to the ground and crumble. But in a glorified state, uh, we would have the proper posture and understanding of how we uh, come before such a God in his glory and in this invisibility and still knowing who he is, feeling his presence and realizing who he is. So Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to also understand that this is a God that we have never seen and no one has ever seen as we've covered. And so we say, okay, well, we understand this. This is what the Belgian Confession is teaching us. But as Paul writes this to Timothy, as I've said, we, we think of these epistles as being practical. And I don't necessarily like that language. It sort of demeans the rest of Scripture. But by, again, practical just by this is how I would like to see the church set up. This is how we would want the church to function. So practical in the sense that Paul's laying out this is what I would like 
uh, as a model for the church. And so when, when you hear this in 1 Timothy 6.16, you think, I understand we need to have a high view of God, right? I mean, he, he's glorious, he's majestic, he's a creator, he's a king of kings, a lord of lords. I mean, what, what a God. And, and here we are called to serve him, redeemed to serve him. Why would Paul give such a declaration? Well, when you back up and you start putting this in the context, and you think of who Timothy is as a young pastor. I was listening to a podcast, we'll get into it in Luke 24 more, but it was an interesting point when I was listening to this that I never thought of before. I don't know why I never thought of it, but it was a very valid point. Christ walks the earth for 40 days. He doesn't give us a church order. He doesn't lay out exactly how the church is supposed to function exactly, right? He doesn't say, you know, here's, here's a model, here's how the church functions, and Christ could have done that. He could have written that manual. He, he could have done a lot of things in, in terms of that. But he doesn't. And what does he do on the road to Emmaus? He opens the word of God. And so the, the intention is that we understand the revealed word of God, what he has given us, his scriptures. And so when, when Paul writes this, his intention is to understand we can be tempted to think, well, God's up in heaven, he's beyond us, or we can fall into a mindset, well, we're just going to go to church, we're just going to attend worship, and as we attend worship, we'll just go through the motions, and, and maybe at some point we'll kind of encounter God, and, and maybe we'll have something, right? That, that we just kind of go through the motions and, and hope something happens. But his point in 1 Timothy 6.16 is to overwhelm us with who calls us into his presence. This is a God who dwells in unapproachable light. This is a king of kings, a lord of lords, a God who has accomplished majestic things. And you think about what Paul has said when we have this exhortation in the context of here. Keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Well, what's this commandment? Well, we back up even more in a testimony, the confession, and the good confession that Timothy has made in the presence of the saints, right? Verses 12 and 13, or the presence of many witnesses. So now let's think about what, what is Paul doing here? Well, when Paul writes this letter, he's making references back to this confession, what this confession means. What does Christ confess before Pilate? Well, you go in John's Gospel, in chapter 18, you find that Christ confesses the truth of his messianic ministry, right? He is truth. He is the one who establishes truth. Um, he is the way to, to God, right? So it's everything about his messianic ministry. Christ says to Pilate, yes, this is my ministry. This is my confession. I don't deny it. Pilate meets it with a cynical response, you know, what is truth? You know, being this profound thinker or whatever. But the point that Paul is making is we think back to that profession. It's professing who Christ is. And we go in 1 Timothy and we say, well, where else does Paul talk about this great confession. Well, we think about the confession of godliness and what it means in 1 Timothy 3.16, don't we? Where he goes and he talks about what Christ has done, one who has been manifested in the flesh, the one who suffered and died, the one who is vindicated in the spirit, taken up into the glory of heaven, seen by angels, right? Speaking of the ministry 
of Christ. And he identifies that with great is the mystery of godliness. So we have something else now that's introduced to us that's rather significant for Paul's theology. Not only us having souls, an invisible spirit that's created within us by God himself, but the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, uniting us to Christ. That the very one who has been vindicated in the spirit is speaking of that resurrection power that is present within us. So now we go back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, and Paul saying to Timothy, think about where you are called and where you dwell as a redeemed individual. That even in these jars of clay, using Paul's language, 2 Corinthians 5, but the jars of clay with the, the power of the Spirit that is broken into us, right? That now we are those who dwell in the presence of God, who alone is immortality, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He dwells in unapproachable light, which means in and of ourselves, we can't come into his presence. But in Christ, we are. We think of him who has never seen or can be seen. We think of Christ tabernacling amongst us and the implications of that. He alone deserves the eternal honor and glory. The point that we see then, we think even going back further, In 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, where Timothy is the one who remembers his oath also in the presence of angels. Where you have this call of what Paul wants to see with us. As the Lord creates Adam in the Garden of Eden, body and soul, forms him with his hands, breathes life into him, breathes the soul that, that is put within Adam, creates it, gives it to him. The ideal for man was to dwell in the presence of God as, you know, joining that heavenly army. That's the outcome. That's the goal. That's what Paul's calling to Timothy. When we think about the church, we can get so caught up in the day in and day out of it and and think that we're just coming together. But Paul wants us to have a much bigger vision as to what's going on when we enter into the worship of our God. When we come together and we live our lives as his saints. We are members of the heavenly assembly, the heavenly army. That's how we need to see ourselves. We are those who are called before the presence of God. When we hear the call to worship, we're called together. We think of the saints looking up at Mount Zion with the great cloud of witnesses, seeing the ultimate outcome of our Christian sojourn, recognizing that even as God is invisible in his full glory, the call is for us to see ourselves being redeemed. So we are made worthy, empowered, and able to dwell in the presence of God. So Paul isn't writing this just to intimidate us, to swat us down, to make us run from our God. But Paul's writing this so we understand where we are in terms of redemptive history. Redeemed saints in Christ Jesus. Sharing in the glory of God. Those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. His invisibility is a call for us to see we will dwell in the presence of the Most High. So somebody says, why is it encouraging to know that God is invisible? Well, I mean, simply stated, as Paul puts it here in 1 Timothy 6, he's not a creature. And that's the simple reality of it. So when we hear of Paul saying he's the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and above them all, it's exactly what he teaches in the Exodus, isn't it? There is no power, there is no being 
There is no creature. There is no demon. There is no spiritual force. There is nothing that can rise above the living God. That's what Paul wants us to understand. That's very practical, isn't it? We don't always believe it. We're not always comforted by it. But this is what Paul wants us to see. This is God who has called us into his presence, who has made us worthy in Christ Jesus. And so when we say, why do we want to live out the Christian life? Why do we want to conform to Christ? Why do we want to bring glory to him? Because we are redeemed by the God who dwells in unapproachable light. The God who is truly immortal in and of who, of who he is. It's intrinsic to his being. It's part of who he is. Is a God who promises to make us immortal people who will be raised to everlasting life, to dwell in his presence, in the glory of heaven, having a flesh that will not be struck down, coming into the glory of heaven itself. But Paul wants us to understand that we can think, oh, that's a future hope. Paul's saying, no. Right now, as we come before the Lord, we are approaching him in his unapproachable glory, his unapproachable light, because of our redemption in Christ. And so we do realize this blessing, because we confess that great confession of the mystery of godliness as we walk in Christ, in the power of faith, by the grace and mercy and power of the Holy Spirit. May we then not minimize the significance of our God and his glorious invisibility, that he transcends this creation. He is a force that is beyond all powers, a God who redeems and a God who is powerful enough to carry out his redemptive promises. Let us have our hope and assurance in him and in him alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, We would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.